The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. I'd like to ask that you turn, and we're going to begin tonight looking at uh, Hebrews. And I actually could like, uh, I would like a little help from maybe a couple of deacons or something. I've got some handouts for everybody, and uh, maybe Herbert, if you'd grab one, and maybe Landis, or, no, sorry, Tim. And uh, these are just handouts on our church life together, um, just some things that I've looked at. But um, one of the things that we've been seeing in our study on what is the church is that the Baptists, uh, Baptists have, in church history, played a unique role in helping to define and understand local church life. And I don't really think that they did anything or they developed anything that isn't biblical. I think they were just moving out of the experience of so-called Christendom in Europe in which there was a welding together of all aspects of society, including state rule and state authority together with the church. And everybody was just born into the church. And whether they were regenerated or not, they grew up in it. And infant baptism was part of that. Um, but as a reaction to that, the Anabaptists and the English Baptists and others started to see that the church was supposed to be made up of believers. The church was a group of believers in a local place. And they developed a, the doctrine or a sense of, uh, of the church that there was the universal or invisible church that we've talked about before. And that is uh, that perfect uh, unity of all of those people throughout all time who have trusted in Christ, repented and trusted in Christ, have been justified by faith and have come to faith in Christ and only God knows who they are. Christ is the head of that body and once you enter that church you can never leave. And that's wonderful, isn't it? You take that church membership with you everywhere you go, even when you die, because that's the one that really matters. But then there's the local church membership, and I don't want to say in any way that that doesn't matter. It does very much as a major tool that God uses for each of us in our sanctification. And that local church has an address. It has a phone number. It meets at a certain time and a place. And there are people that you get to know, and they get to know you. And the Baptists really developed this vision of local church membership that as much as possible should be comprised of those that are truly born again. They are regenerate, regenerate church membership. And to safeguard this, there have been traditionally uh, seen two aspects of the church, but I'd like to add a third. Uh, one of them is believer baptism, and we talked about that last time I taught on this, and that they would not be baptizing anyone that had not given signs of regeneration, could not give a testimony of having come to faith in Christ. Uh, most especially, they would not baptize infants because they had not been able to give any sign of regeneration. And so they were looking for believers and believers only to do baptism. We talked about that last time. The third, not second, but third aspect of safeguard for regenerate church membership was church discipline in which somebody who is in a recalcitrant or determined way living as a pagan or an unbeliever uh, is no longer uh, a member of the church. And that is biblical from Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5. We're going to talk about that in the future. But in between those two things is the Baptist vision, or I think a New Testament vision, of church life together. 
that the church was to have a life together, that there was going to be an ongoing life. And what did that involve? And there's a lot of aspects to it, but we were to be a community of people. We were to be together. We were to know each other. We were to get to know each other. We were to pray for each other. We were going to carry each other's burdens. We were going to teach and admonish one another. We were going to do many things for each other. And out of that life together would come an intimate knowledge of one another and the ability to help each other. And that is the one that I want to give attention to tonight and perhaps over the next few times. What is the New Testament? vision of church life together. And this is a really important, I think, issue for us today. And why is that? Because we are just as Americans so individualistic, aren't we? We're very independent. We're very independent. People will say, my religion is between myself and God, or I'm, I am fiercely private about those kinds of things, or whatever. And we kind of bring that privatized aspect in here, and we sit and listen. And I think more and more as we get into, you know, uh, say, a, a really big church, there's a tendency for people to sit and observe and to be spectators, but there's not a life together. And the church is meant to have a life together. And as I was thinking about this life together, we started in Hebrews chapter uh, 3. Actually, Hebrews, uh, yeah, Hebrews 3, we'll start there. And we've had a Bible study on Thursdays, uh, men's Bible study, in which we're discussing the book of Hebrews. And we're seeing in there a real vision for the church as a community together and how important that is. And I've mentioned these verses before, but I, I really have come to believe that Hebrews 3, 12 and 13, or 12 through 14, but especially 12 and 13, uh, if understood properly and put to uh, good use here at First Baptist Church, will transform the way we live together as brothers and sisters in Christ. I think so. I think Hebrews 3, 12 and 13 are absolutely vital verses for First Baptist Durham so that we can understand them. Look at, it, at what it says. It says there in Hebrews 3, 12, See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Now, the key factor that I'd like to focus on here is the sense of one-anothering that goes on in this verse. Do you see? There's a sense of community responsibility. See to it, brothers, that none of you has, etc., etc. We're supposed to be looking out over each other, and specifically looking out over each other's hearts. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart. Well, how do we do that? How can we shepherd each other's hearts? Well, I think the Bible makes it clear that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, and we could extend it to say, really, out of the overflow of the heart, the life lives. And we can see things by how we live with each other. And if we're atomized and individualized, we can't do this, can we? We can't take care or, or take heed or be careful that none of us has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. We really become like Cain saying, am I my brother's keeper? Am I supposed to watch over him or her? Do I have a responsibility? Well, we testify to that responsibility in our church covenant, don't, don't we? We're going to watch over one another in brotherly love. We're going to care for each other. Go back one chapter as we've already looked at this, but Hebrews 2.1, it says we, may, we must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. That has just really, really been poignant for me to consider. The possibility of somebody just drifting away in the Christian life. Just drifting away. And it happens, doesn't it? You know, little by little, they show less and less interest in spiritual things. Little by little, they're not attending as much. They're just not there. Things happen. And before you know it, you don't know what's going on. You've lost touch. They've drifted away. 
And so those two really go together. We're supposed to take heed and be very, very careful how we listen. We have to pay more careful attention to what we have heard. That's doctrine, the Bible, and to the, to the gospel and to all the full aspects of, of Christian truth. We're going to pay more careful attention to this so that we do not drift away. But then in chapter 3, it shows that there's a responsibility we have for each other. Take care for each other. Look out for each other that we're not developing a hardened heart. Now, what is the nature of this hardened heart? Well, if you look back at Hebrews 3, 7, it says, So today, or so as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So that's what it's talking about. As the Holy Spirit says. Isn't that powerful? And then we've noted in our, in our Thursday Bible study, what comes after is an Old Testament quotation. Psalm 95. As the Holy Spirit says, quote Psalm 95. Wow. That means the Holy Spirit is speaking today to us through Psalm 95? Absolutely. The scripture is living and active, it says in chapter 4. The word of God is alive. It is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It is able to penetrate. It's alive. And the Holy Spirit speaks to us today as the Holy Spirit says. That's present tense. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. So what's happening is, as we go on in the Christian life, we are listening to, we're hearing the word of God, aren't we? And we're reacting to it. We're either believing it or we're not believing it. We're either accepting it as it really is the word of God at work among those who believe, or we are rejecting it, saying it's merely the, the word of men. Or I accept it as the word intellectually, but I'm not going to live by it. And what has happened? The heart has started to get hard through the deceitfulness of sin. And that is damaging, isn't it? Very dangerous. And we're supposed to, according to Hebrews 3, 12, and 13, be watching out for each other that that not take place. The danger is sin, isn't it? Sin is dangerous. Sin is deceitful. Sin is tricky. It hardens us little by little gradually. You don't see it happening, but little by little, a kind of spiritual rigor mortis is setting in. And you really can't see it. You start to develop some blind spots. And what is the greatest protection uh, for that? It's the body of Christ. It's a bunch of people around you who love you enough to come and communicate with you. And that's what I'm talking about tonight. What I'm going to, I've given you out a sheet, you already have seen where I'm going, but I've gone through and started to look at a number of verbs that are related to verbal communication, speaking to each other, kinds of things that we can do with our mouths, with the word that the scripture enjoins or commands on us, that we can do for each other to protect each other from sin. And there's 15 of them. Now you might be able to work and find another 10, but you're saying, boy, 15 is enough? It's kind of like a toolkit that we can use in each other's lives so that we can help each other not slip away, drift away, get hardened little by little. Now, sin is a very dangerous thing. Now, I want to show you some other verses before we get into these words. Look at Galatians chapter 6. Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Remember I've told you that the vision here is of regenerate church membership. And the Baptist's protection for that was, I believe, threefold. That is believer baptism, a regenerate baptism, church life together, and then church discipline. And I think if we understand church discipline properly, it's really just the kind of a natural extension of the second. As we're living life together, it's really kind of the final step of all the other things that are done before that. It's not out of the blue. It's something that is the final and really grievous step uh, when nothing else has, has worked. 
But there's a whole life together. Now look at it in, in Galatians 6, 1 and 2. It says there, brothers, Galatians 6, sorry, 1 and 2, brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Verse 2, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Isn't that powerful? We're supposed to be carrying each other's burdens. What is the burden of verse 2? Is it not somebody else's sin? I mean, in context, isn't that what it is? If we're going to be carrying each other's burdens, it's connected, I think, to verse 1. And what is it that you who are spiritual have noticed something in somebody else? You've seen a danger area. You've seen a problem. And you're spiritual. That means you're filled with the Spirit. You're not perfect. You're not perfect. Not at all. You're going to get the log out of your eye first before you go. And then you're going to see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Definitely that's going to go on. But you're going there in humility. But you're going. Do we go? Do we? Do we obey this? I think we don't. I think there's a sense of live and let live, judge not, lest you be judged, and all this kind of thing, and we're not doing this for each other. And it says very clearly how we're to do it. Do it gently, watching yourself. Why are you supposed to watch yourself? Because you're a sinner too. It could be you next month. Probably will be you next month. And you're going to need that. You're going to need somebody to come and talk to you about something going on in your life. This needs to go on. It needs to happen. And this is part of what Paul saw was the Christian life together in the book of Galatians. Look at James chapter 5. James chapter 5, the end of a bunch of, of instructions that James gives about the Christian life together. He talks about prayer, about the elders anointing people with oil and praying over them. And, and then he gets to this in 519, at the very end of his book, his letter. James 5.19, it says, My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this, whoever t turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Isn't this teaching the same thing that Galatians just taught? In other words, there's somebody that's turned away from the way. They've gotten out of the way. They're not following the biblical life anymore. Something's gone on. They've wandered from the truth, it says in 519. And guess what happens? Somebody goes and brings them back. And, and what does it say that that person's doing? He's saving that person from death. Wow. Does God really put to death sinning Christians? Yes, sometimes. The biblical testimony is there. If you're, you know, 1 Corinthians talks about uh, some have fallen asleep because they handled the Lord's Supper improperly. And so it's really a good thing when a brother comes and saves you from death, isn't it? And he also covers over a multitude of sins. He cuts off that branch before it grows too big, before he nips it in the bud, before it really gets developed. Somebody goes and says, look, this is not the Christian life. Don't do this. And so he turns him from the error of his ways, and he turns him from, uh, saves him from death. Look also at 1 John 5, 1 John 5, 16 and 17. 1 John 5:16 and 17 says, If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray, and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that he should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. 
Now this is uh, talking about, I'm not going to get into what is or what is not a sin that leads to death or doesn't lead to death. That's another topic for another night. But at least this much we can say. We are to watch over one another in prayer. You're seeing something. You're seeing somebody commit some sin. And you're, I think this is really the first step. You go immediately to God and say, I'm seeing this in my brother. I'm seeing this in my sister. I'm going to pray. And you start to pray. There's a sense of shepherding, a sense of watching over one another. Isn't that what it means to be in a church? Isn't that what church is supposed to be? At least this much is true in the kind of topic we're talking about tonight. Church is protection from your own sinfulness. And we need that, don't we? We need that protection. If you know yourself well enough to know that all other things off, we don't have any protection, we don't have any, any corrals, we're going to drift. There's like a, like a, a kind of a, a twisted nature to the way we navigate our lives. And so therefore we need correction all the time. We just need to be brought back and we do that for each other. And it's done gently, it's done with humility, but it needs to be done. So, so far, all I've been doing is advocating a Christian life together in which we are, in fact, watching over one another, caring about each other, looking after one another. I think Jesus intended this, didn't he? I think he intended it. Now, the question is, how do we do it? And I think that these words that I've given you are a variety of tools that the Holy Spirit has given us in the New Testament that you are to use properly. Now, any skilled technician knows when to use what tool. That's really kind of important, isn't it? I mean, let's look at these kind of case studies here, varieties of situations. Suppose a brother or sister is sad, weak, weary, or discouraged in the Christian life. Now look down at the list below. What would you not want to use, for example? Admonishment, okay? A warning, a stern rebuke, perhaps, would not be in order at that time. That's like pulling out that 10-pound uh, sledgehammer to drive in one of those little tiny finishing nails or something like that. I mean, or to fix something in your car. Most of your engines are plastic these days. You don't want to pull that tool out. That's not what it's for. What would you want to use? Look at the list below. Somebody's, somebody's sad, weak, weary, or discouraged. What do you want to use? Comfort? Edification, perhaps? What else? Encouragement. Encouragement. That's right. Um, all right, what about the next one? Brother or sister is ignorantly wandering into sin. They're getting into something new. They're not aware of what they're doing. They're, they're starting to drift admonishment, that is appropriate. You're, you're warning them about the road ahead. This is where it's going to lead. Teaching, warning, and, and frankly, I'm not quite sure the difference between warning and admonishment. They really probably are synonyms, but maybe not. Okay. Yeah, correction. You know, and, and I think that there's that kind of adjustment that you're going to want to do in that and say, look, you know, this is a problem here. Uh, brother or sister is willfully persisting in sin. This means that you've already done the other one, but the person is just digging their heels in and they continue to go on. What then? Reproof or rebuke. That's a stronger form of communication. There's some punch behind it, some emo I mean verbally now. Um, some emotion, there's some, you know, there, there, there's, uh, there's more to it, there's more going on. Does the scripture command that we do this for each other? Yeah, it does. These words are found in the New Testament as I will prove adequately down below. Um, we're only, I've only listed uh, eight of them below, and I'm going to give you another handout, God willing, next time. But uh, these are different tools we're going to use. How about this one? Brother or sister is growing slack, lazy, or negligent in the Christian life. They've abandoned their prayer life. They're not getting up for the quiet time anymore. They're not coming you know, to church perhaps as much, or they're not coming to outreach like they used to or something like that. Exhortation, maybe something. Again, warning. Okay, discipline. Depends how you understand it. 
You see what I'm saying? What I'm getting at here is you're looking over these tools, and as you're seeing them, as you begin to understand how they function, you're going to try, try to choose, under the leadership of the Spirit, the right tool. But all I'm saying is do it. That's probably the main message tonight is we're to do this for each other. And when we don't do this for each other, it creates what I call a warm, dark, moist environment in which what grows very well? Sin. You see what I'm saying? We're all kind of covering each other. We're all kind of ignoring each other's sins, and it just goes. And it grows like a mold, and it's disgusting. I'm sorry, what? Bacteria, okay. Bacteria, mold, fungus, anything disgusting. Hey, you know, I think we really need to learn to see sin the way God does. Isn't sin all of those things and worse? Have you ever been like me? Well, I shouldn't say that. But anyway, you put something in Tupperware and you forget it's there in the back of the refrigerator. You know, have you ever done that? Maybe I'm the only one. Huh? Yeah, there's something new. I mean, it's a new creation, something you've never seen before. All different kinds of colors of orange and green. And you open it up, and at that point, really the best thing to do is throw the Tupperware out. There's no sense in cleaning the Tupperware. I mean, it's hopeless. Forget it. It's over. I'm sorry, and I, you probably wonder where it went. <laughs> Moving along, at any rate, the point is we need to learn to see sin the way God does. I mean, the most vile and the most disgusting thing you could imagine in that kind of situation is far less than the way God sees sin, far less. God is of pure eyes. He can't even look at sin. And we don't see it that way. And we really need each other's help to begin seeing some things. We really do. We need, we need to help each other. You know, if Christian uh, brother or sister is doing well in the Christian life, they could be praised. They could be encouraged. Well done. Good job. You know, it says we're supposed to honor men like him. Uh, it says in Philippians chapter 2. There's a lot of things we can do for each other, uh, etc. So you're looking down uh, through this list at the variety of situations. Now, it's unbelievably 657. But let's look at one or two of these, and then uh, we'll pick it up next time. Um, is it possible to rebuke a, a watch and say you're moving too quickly? My goodness. Well, let's look at some of these individually. I've given them to you below in alphabetical order. No particular order. No particular order. But, oh, one thing. This is a, a really great book. This is the American Dictionary of the English Lang Language, 1828 edition by Noah Webster. Now, it's a reprint, so it's brand new. It's not incredibly valuable. But it's been printed, and it's remarkable the definitions of these words it gives. Many of them are biblical and gives you examples right this is Noah Webster, right in there, uh, descriptions of how each of these would function. He begins to divide the words out very, very nicely. And so I've given you Noah Webster's dictionary definition of uh, a number of these. Let's look at admonish. Noah Webster in 1828 said, uh, to admonish is to warn or notify of a fault, to reprove with mildness. There's a mildness here. Uh, to counsel against wrong practices, to caution or advise, to instruct or direct. In ecclesiastical affairs, by the way, you're not going to see that in the modern dictionary definition, but here's Noah Webster giving it to us. In ecclesiastical affairs, to reprove a member of the church for a fault, either publicly or privately. This is the first step of church discipline. That's in Noah Webster, 1828. Look up the modern edition of the Webster, and you're not going to find that in there probably. All right, well, what are some examples that we can find uh, for that? Well, um, the Apostle Paul gives us an example in Acts 20. He's talking to the Ephesian elders. He's given them his farewell speech. In Acts 20, 31, it says, Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that, for night and, that night and day, for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. He was working it, wasn't he? He was admonishing each one. Why with tears? Well, because sin is serious. Life is serious. 
It's a serious business, and he's very concerned about each member of the Ephesian church. He wants to be concerned about it. A great example uh, of this is in Acts 27, the shipwreck. All right, before the ship even gets into trouble, the Apostle Paul says this, when considerable time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, since uh, even the fast was already over, Paul began to admonish them and said to them, Men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be attended with damage and great loss, not only of the cargo of the ship, but also of our lives. What is he saying? He's saying, I am looking ahead into the future, and if we sail now at this time of year, we're going to have a big problem. This is an admonishment. He's warning them, don't do it. Don't sail out now. Find a winter harbor and wait there. But they didn't listen to Paul, did they? And they went out and sailed out. And what happened? Wow, they lost damaged cargo and all that. But not anyone, anyone's lives by the grace of God. But they did lose the ship. And so he gave them an admonishment and they didn't heed it. And so it's a warning about what is gonna, what, what's going to come. Uh, we also see some commands in this matter, 2 Thessalonians 3, 14 and 15. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that man and do not associate with him, so that he may be put to shame. And yet, do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Do you see that? So the point is, Paul says, I'm writing a letter here. It's not just my opinion. I'm an apostle. And so I'm writing as from the Lord. And if anyone disregards the things I'm writing, you should deal with them in this way. Ultimately, admonish him as a brother. Warn him, saying, this is dangerous to ignore the word of God the way you are. And then uh, Colossians 1.28 says, We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching every man with all wisdom, that we may present every man complete in Christ. You may not know that, but that is your youth minister's life verse. All right? And the youth ministry, the center of that is Colossians 1.28 that Andy shared with me. And then Colossians 3.16 says it again, let the word of Christ dwell richly within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with, all, with psalms, hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So here's how it works. We are watching over one another in brotherly love. We're concerned about each other and we notice that somebody's begun to launch out as in a sailing vessel in a voyage that's going to bring disaster. And so before they, just as they're setting the rigging up and they're making their plans with their charts and all that, you come into the captain's room and say, look, this is not the voyage you want to take at this time. This is a dangerous course. And if you start heading out in this direction, I urge you and, and warn you that you're going to run into some big problems, just like Paul did in Acts 27. How valuable is that, that somebody would do that for you? It's valuable, isn't it? That somebody would love you enough to come and say, I'm concerned about you. You're, you're, you're launching out into some bad habit patterns, some bad things, and, and I'm concerned about you. Let's look at one more, and then we'll close tonight. The second one in alphabetical order is comfort. We're to comfort each other. Noah Webster in 1828 talked about it this way. To, to comfort is to strengthen, invigorate, invigorate, cheer, or enliven. To strengthen the mind when depressed, enfeebled, and to console. So we're to be bringing comfort to each other. A good example of this is just what was done for those that are grieving. In, in John 11, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. There's a time when somebody is just going through a grieving time. They're really hurting. And all you need to do sometimes is just be like Job's friends were early on in their ministry, and that is just sit there with them. They were at their wisest when they were just there. And it was a comfort that they were just there during that time. And there's times for that, isn't there? Because if we don't have that, we're going to become overwhelmed by, by discouragement and despair. Sometimes it's enough for somebody to just come and say, I'm here. I'm here. I love you, and I'm praying for you, and I'm concerned for you, and I'm here. 
biblical precept, Second uh, Corinthians 1, 3 and 4, in which Paul says, uh, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. That is the ultimate comfort verse, isn't it? <laughs> That's the one you want when you want to learn about comfort. And in effect, it's saying all comfort comes from who? Who is the God of all comfort? God gives the comfort. But so often he gives it through his children. He gives it through us to each other. He gives it to one another. And not only that, but he does it by working some comfort in your own life earlier so that in that very same way, you bring that same word of comfort that you had received earlier. You went through something just like this. And so therefore, I think just like we've been seeing in Romans chapter 8, God causes all things to work together. Sometimes he brings you through something so that as a result, you can go comfort brothers and sisters for the rest of your life on that very matter. You may lose a loved one. You may be a widow or a widower. You may have lost a child very young. And you're able to come and, and you know what to do better than if you hadn't been through that. You know when to speak and when to be quiet. You know when to pray and when to, when to, when to just put an arm around somebody. And so you're comforting with the comfort you yourself have received from God. It says the same thing also in, um, in 1 Thessalonians 4. And I love this. This is sometimes the best way to comfort each other. It says, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Isn't that wonderful? Remind them of heaven. Jack and I were talking about this verse just the other day. Remind them of heaven. Remind them of the Lord. Remind them of the second coming of Christ. Remind them of these things. This is very comforting to each other. And then it says, uh, it doesn't mention comfort here, but I think I like this principle. Romans 12:15. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Father, we thank you for the things that we've learned tonight. We thank you, O oh Lord, for what we're to be for each other. And I pray, Father, that we would learn to be that for each other. Father, that we would be a church together. Father, help us to use these tools that you've given us so that we can be for each other, the brothers and sisters that we need to be. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.